You're listening to a Radio Stockdale podcast. Podcasts that are inspiring, interactive, and feature various discussions of leadership, ethics, and law. Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 1965 film, A Man for All Seasons. Mm -hmm. So this movie, it takes place in the 1500s in England. Yes. And this is the reign of the infamous Henry VIII as king. And at the beginning of the movie, he is looking for an annulment of his first wife, Catherine of Aragon. Mm -hmm. And because their marriage has not produced a male heir, and he has been having an affair with Anne Boleyn. So he's looking for the annulment, but the Pope is not allowing it. Right. And... So eventually we see uh, a man named Cardinal Wolseley because the Pope sort of oversees what's going on, right, with... Uh, yeah, the, uh, the, 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 the idea is that um, um, the, you cannot grant an annulment unless there is a sufficient reason, right? Uh, the Pope believes that uh, the lack of a, a male heir is not sufficient reason, Um so he won't do it, and Cardinal Wolsey um, actually uh, uh, had appealed to the Pope in person on this, and other people were sent appealing the Pope uh, on this matter, and in every case, Henry was turned down. What's kind of interesting about this, looking at the history here, um, and by no means, I'm not an expert, it's very complicated, but uh, if you look at uh, early in his reign, um, when he was a younger man, Henry actually wrote a, a, a treatise defending uh, the Catholic Church and the Pope and papal authority, and it's generally considered to be the case that uh, Thomas More helped him write that thing. And um, that makes it all the more ironic that later on, when he is becoming so obsessed with making sure that his lineage carries on and he has a male heir, that uh, you know, eventually, uh, this was the, the the driving concern and the driving uh, chain of events that led to uh, the formation of a major Protestant um, uh, offshoot, the the Anglican Church, the Church of England, and uh, with the uh, very startling, certainly in those days, with the startling feature uh, that uh, the 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 king, a secular uh, ruler, was to be considered the head of that church, more or less like the pope. Um, and uh, that was that was pretty darn uh, uh, radical, uh, a change that he was attempting to carry out. And uh, I think the film does a good job of um, showing how shocking it was. Uh, and what a difficult position Thomas More was put in um, by his close association with the king and his friendship with the king 
but at the same time, him, he, he, he's a very devout Catholic, and he believes that uh, this is uh, sacrilegious uh, because, according to his view, the Pope is on a, a, a line of direct, I can't quite say it this way, but I'm going to say it anyway, kind of a, a direct lineage to St. Peter, who was the person that Jesus had basically given uh, the uh, 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 power and uh, legitimacy of uh, continuing his church. So uh, Thomas More believing very strongly that that was the case and that the lineage from Peter up until uh, the, uh, the, the Pope in the 1500s um, was legitimate. Uh, he just could not stomach this. And uh, the film does a good job, I think, of portraying the uh, uh, amount of friction, angst, fear, and in, uh, in the king's case, rage uh, uh, generated by his refusal to do this and his refusal to basically take these oaths or, or uh, swear these oaths that he would uh, accept the uh, king as the... Uh, uh, the, not just a titular head, but the head of this church. He just could not bring himself to do it. Yeah, because what well, you say, once Henry takes over, um, he's now making everybody pledge loyalty to him. And that is when, said, Moore refuses and now he is imprisoned. But he, the thing is, he also tries to maintain the silence of never explicitly saying his beliefs and saying that, well, if I'm not, if I'm staying silent about it, there's that sort of a loophole that I can get out of. Yes. But when it's finally brought to trial, they, um, Thomas Cromwell, mm-hmm. who's been sort of the right hand man for King Henry, and he's known in history as the guy that would always behead anybody who's suspicious, mm-hmm. and he says he. Basically argues against that, and it's pretty much a kangaroo court at the end because even when the jury is retiring to deliberate, yeah. Cromwell even says, "Do you even need to do that? Yes. Let's just have it right now." Yeah. And then, they took a little bit of dramatic license there. Apparently, the jury did deliberate for fifteen minutes. No, 15, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but very dramatic, and, and they got the uh, the. Uh, other particulars of that trial, right, in, in, including the perjury of uh, Richard Rich, which I thought was very interesting. I, I just call him Richie Rich. Richie Rich, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, and so he is found guilty, and he makes this big speech at the end. He's allowed to say, and then he's he, he denounces what's been going on with Henry VIII. He's finally allowed to yeah. lose his silence. Yeah, it sort of gets the crowd in an uproar. And he's eventually beheaded. And he's, his famous line is, I die his majesty's good servant, but God's first. Yeah. And then he is executed. And what's interesting in the movie is it shows all the, gives the epilogue of everybody who was involved in this trial. Yeah. So they all didn't have very good fates either. I no. Mean, the whole, interesting because, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert on, you know, this era in history or Henry VIII, but even I know the story of Henry VIII of having eight different wives and either killing them or knowing yeah. the marriage all the time. Yeah. So, you know, he marries Anne Boleyn. That doesn't go well because he has her head cut off. So, yes. you know, it's just it, all this and it still didn't change. You oh, know, yeah. Didn't change. The, uh, 
this is a that period of, and I'm no history uh, expert on it either. But th- this period of time, I think, is a good uh, it's a good object lesson to keep in mind. That, and not in the not too distant past, the Anglo-Saxon world was just a brutal place, and uh, political power was literally uh, wielded uh, with with the executioner's axe. Um, so we have to keep in mind that. Uh, um, we're very lucky to be in a in a, in the situation we are now in in the uh, Anglo-Saxon world in the West in general. It wasn't that long ago when we were just as brutal and uh, savage and uh, sadistic and bloodthirsty as other parts of the world still are. And it's a, a, a cautionary tale uh, for those um, that would uh, expect to export uh, uh, the the kind of civilization that has grown up painfully over over centuries uh on the on the quick to places like maybe afghanistan or iraq um uh, they haven't they haven't gone through that kind of a development and it, it takes time i think and in europe you know the, the the religious wars between the protestants and the, and the parts of europe and the catholic parts of europe uh eventually uh exhausted europe and they they uh, decided, in essence, to quit trying to uh, forcefully convert one another uh, with the Peace of Westphalia. Um, and this movie um, and that period of history gives you a good uh, uh, look into what Europe was like before the Peace of Westphalia. Um, yeah, it's just it, it all the more remarkable that... Uh, uh, men like Thomas More and and others uh were able to stand up to this pressure. Yeah, and it's it shows just how there's no separation of church and state where basically it says the church pretty much is the state where also you, even beginning of the movie where almost the pope is having the final say in a lot of things, but then later on once King Henry for, you know, breaks off and forms his own he makes him yeah. the head of his own yeah. church yes and you know this was he's he's mentioned briefly in the movie but it also brings the you know martin luther who mm-hmm. i believe thomas more objected to in his oh book. yes i could tell you some funny stuff there uh, martin luther uh and thomas more actually exchanged to put it mildly barbs uh, uh, uh against each other more being the uh, very much died in the wool Catholic, and uh, Martin Luther uh, uh, having deep distrust and criticism of the Catholic Church and things like indulgences and mm-hmm. and uh, its its uh, uh, meddling in affairs of state and so forth. Um, but um, there, Martin Luther has a has, in his writings. He has a reputation of, if you read the stuff, it's shocking. Um, uh, using scatological insults <laughs> against the people that he's writing against. Um, I could give you quotes, but what's really kind of, in a way, funny and remarkable is in 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 he he, he produced one of these just scathing tracts uh against uh england right and against figures in in the in uh uh england who were who were more loyal to the catholic church at that time 
and uh, Thomas More wrote a response, and I can't, I could read you the quote, um, but it too makes reference to the four-letter word for scat. scat. See, no, see, this is nothing new. It's not like and, society is less uh, sophisticated it, than it was years ago. Yeah. They were making these insults back in the 1500s. Yeah, it too. makes today's political discourse look very mild. He's telling him he's full of fill-in-the-blank, and not only that, I can fill you more. I, I, you, you, you are deserving of getting more of it poured into every orifice in your body. This is Thomas More we're talking about, who, by the way, now is a saint, right? Yes, yes. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the if anything, the politics and the rhetoric then, back then was uh, uh, even more extreme than we find today, uh, even more extreme than maybe in, in, in the history of America. You, you would find stuff like this going on during the Civil War, for instance, Um but wow, that, that was Thomas More writing that. You read that quote, it's rather shocking. I, I don't want to repeat yeah. it on the podcast, but uh, wow. <laughs> well, you do, because you always have, in this era, you have all these different things, like Lutheranism with Martin Luther, which is mentioned briefly, but you know yeah. the events in this film, you think of, you know, like you said, the Church of England, Anglicanism, Protestants, you know, you think of indulgences with the Catholic Church, and that's when one pro- that's my main problem with the movie. All these different things, all these different things you have to keep track of. You almost feel like if you're not really well read on the subject, you're going to feel a little bit lost and behind. Yeah. And you know what? I, I think, though, the, you don't need to be completely up on the history because I, th- I think the, the film does raise a very interesting question for modern ears um, because its main character has has a choice to make he can basically pay lip service to even though he doesn't agree with what henry the eighth wants to do right and you see uh through several poignant scenes that uh he's a great family man right he's loved by his wife and his his daughter um he uh could easily look out for them, could easily look out for himself by paying that lip service and uh, taking the oath. In fact, uh, I think his daughter even puts it that way. She says, you can say the words, but you don't have to say them in your heart. It's just your mouth vocalizing. Why don't you just do that? Right? So that's the key issue here. It's a matter of whether or not he's going to stand up for his principles or the principles he believes are right. And and they're deeply rooted for him. They're deeply rooted in his convictions that Peter was the, uh, and and the lineage from Peter are, are, are the only legitimate representatives of Christ and God. Right. So for modern ears, it might sound like, hey, no big deal. Just take the oath. What's what's the problem? Right. But if you take it in that way, it's a crisis of conscience. Mm -hmm. And if he doesn't do it, he knows what will follow. Right. He knows that according to the law, he will be hanged. Right. And. Uh. According to the law that was 
uh, in place at the time. Uh, it, it's even worse than that. He would be hanged and then quartered. Uh, basically because it was a, a con- it would have been considered heresy not to pay that lip service to that um, proposition. Um, again, Protestants treated heretics terribly. Catholics treated heretics terribly in this time period. So he knows that, right? So he could, he could save himself from that fate by essentially betraying what he truly believes. Also, he could assure that his family would continue to live in luxury and security by paying lip service to that, proposal, to that um, proposition. So that's the choice he has to make. Stick with your conscience, what you think God actually wants you to do, or look out for your uh, immediate self-interest and your family's immediate interest. What do you do, right? And you can see there's several points in the story where he very poignantly points this out. Uh, and as I was watching it, it made me think of um, things that, and I'm probably, I'm sure he was probably familiar with this because he was classically trained and educated. And I would imagine uh, Henry might have even been aware of this too, because believe it or not, he was classically trained and educated. He was fluent in Latin, for instance. Um, but uh, um, uh, and, and these guys were an influence on Christianity. The Stoics talk about what they call in, in uh, English translation, your person is a moral purpose. The Greek term is prohoresis, but it, it, it captures, and he's, he puts it this way in the film, uh, a unique fact about human beings that at their core, they are concerned with their own moral status, right? And it's very, very hard to give that up. It's very, very hard to betray that moral core of the person. And this is what Henry's asking him to do, right? And he comes to the conclusion that there are some things that it's preferable to die than to do. And this giving up of the moral purpose is, is one, of, one of those. Uh, per, and, I, and that, I think, gives this movie its, uh, its oomph, if you will. Yeah. I mean, it, people who become religious martyrs, because he's been, he said he's become a saint, he's been canonized. I mean, the two people that sort of were coming into my mind with thinking of this, one even before Thomas More was famously Joan of Arc of France, Yep. And it was, and it wasn't by her own country, right? It was by England when she was captured that they put her, they burned her at the stake for yes. her beliefs that she was, she was a messenger of God, I believe. Yeah. And then he, now, in somewhat recent memory, was um, Franz Jager's daughter. He mm-hmm. was an Aust- Austrian farmer during the World War II era, and he was he refused on religious objection to fight for Germany. Yes. And even now, and it, it, this was made in a Terrence Malick movie a couple years ago called The Hidden Life. But there are ways, just like in this movie, where they say, just sign it. You don't even have to fight for us. Just sign a letter, something in support of Hitler or the party. Yes. And he refused to do that. Yes, yes. Two, two very good further examples of this phenomenon. And another one from the, the history of philosophy, again, is uh, Socrates himself. He could have easily, all he had to do to save his life was... Uh, 
just agree not to do what he had been doing, which was uh, talk philosophy, uh, ask penetrating questions in public, right? And and they basically promised, "We'll leave you alone. You'll be fine." And he even had friends say, "Look, you don't, you, you can you can you can leave Athens. Uh, we'll we'll get you out. We'll pay the jailers bribes. We'll get you out. You can move to some other part of of the uh, Greek world, and you'll be just fine." And uh, very interestingly, he refused both offers. He said, "It's it's it's better to die this way than to live that way. I can't do that." And it also, I think it brings up to the case of even modern cases. You see a lot of this today with as far as religious objections to whether it's teachings in certain classes or people in medical reasons like, mm-hmm. you know, normal is Jehovah's Witnesses few, refuse blood transfusions. Yeah. And there's other ones. But you could still see that religious objections today in society. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You can. And in, in a lot of those cases, uh, these are very strongly held convictions. And the uh, uh, choice from the outside, what looks to be relatively easy for somebody that doesn't uh, necessarily share those same convictions. But from that inside perspective, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's either a tough choice or an easy choice, right? Uh, easy in that it, they believe it follows from their religious convictions, you know, ultimately from God, uh, why would you, why would you even consider doing anything otherwise? But also tough because, uh, in a lot of cases by, uh, uh, acting according to that convictions, they either bring a, a lot of, uh, uh, social antagonism on themselves or in the case of something like the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, they, uh, often bring about, uh, great risk for their person or person of their families, if, for instance, they refuse blood transfusions. Um, again, from the outside, it looks to be an easy click, you know, easy choice to take the blood transfusion. Um, but from their perspective, um, because of that uh, set of religious beliefs they have, um, they can't do it. Yeah. And when you see, like we've talked about how this era caused all this you know, conflicts and breaking off of the different churches, whether it's Anglicans or Protestants or the Catholics. And it, it's, you feel like because of this, there's so many set, it's sowing the seeds for what we see later in religious clashes. And I would even say even more recent stuff as far as, um, you know, back into the 80s when you saw the clash going on with the Troubles in Ireland, when yeah. Ireland is very Catholic, so they didn't like Anglicans and Protestants because that's British. And there was stuff with the IRA, and there was constant back and forth and violence going on probably up into the 90s. Yeah, right. And, and, and not to mention uh, the, the, the Sunni-Shia uh, rift in the Muslim world is very much like this uh, period in history. Uh, not only in there being fundamental disagreements as to the theology, but also uh, because in both cases, typically what is the case is there's a very tight connection like there was at this period in Europe between uh, uh, the, uh, uh, as it were, the power of the church and the state. And in fact, they're connected, right? Um, and, you, and you'll see it almost inevitably inevitably brings on the same sort of internecine conflict that goes on uh um, and again i mean we we're we're lucky to live in a society where that issue has largely been settled uh, here in the west that isn't the case in those parts of the world where 
um, uh, there hasn't been such a clean cleavage between political power and religious, uh, the religious life. And if there is, like a, you would say, somebody who's taking advantage of this situation, it would be Thomas Cromwell, who even early on, even before Henry's made his move, he is spying on yeah. um, Moore as he's talking to Mosley. And you see throughout he's growing more power, and he's you still see you see people he's sowing the seeds. When you see him, you can't help think of somebody like Heinrich Mueller, who mm-hmm. was the head of the Gestapo for the Nazis, but also even with the Russians, there was many heads of KGB, but one of the more notables was Lavrenti Beria. Lavrenti Beria. Lavrenti Beria. And for those of you who've seen the movie Death of Stalin, he's one of the main players in that. You see his power and all the. Yeah. Who he has, or even people who his own party, but how that sort of leads him to his. Demo- spoiler alert, but leads him to his own. Demo- yeah, spoiler yes. for a movie based on actual facts, but. Yeah. Spo- um, <laughs> leads him to his demise in the end of the film, and you. See, looking at Cromwell, if you the, the, you see that little epilogue later on, that leads to his demise later on. Yes. It's not in the movie, but later on, he screws things up. He loses favor he, with Henry, yeah. and he's beheaded. And he's beheaded. Yes, absolutely. And uh, another, I think, another theme in the film that this brings brings out, and I guess it's kind of related to what we've been talking to before, um, is the fact that uh, this is the kind of thing that occurs. When you have a state or a political unit that is, it's, it's, its primary means of control is through the, uh, as it were, tyrannical power of one person. And when they, uh, the, there is a less and less respect for the rule of law. And you can, you can kind of see this is what Henry's trying to do. Yeah, there was a rather complex legal system in England and it was still in place. But still, uh, he, he made great efforts to bend it to his will and pass laws that essentially would uh, put him in charge of the law and allow him to uh, not just interpret it, but dictate it. And the same thing you can see, uh, obviously, with uh, Hitler in Russia, or Hitler in Germany, and Stalin in, uh, Lenin and Stalin in Russia, um, and once that happens, then then for those people that are um, um, in in the uh, uh, kind of the the web of power that is the government, uh, for, in order for them to preserve their positions or perhaps better their positions, uh, their primary means is to uh, serve that tyrant, do his bidding, and so forth. Well, then the tyrant, he's aware that he's got this much control over these people. So you have a complex interplay of, uh, as it were, master and slave in a way, um, and uh, consp- cons- conspiratorial um, activities that become all too common and people uh, 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 machinating against one another. Uh, very typical, very typical in those kinds of political setups and the part of the this is what i think the part of what this film is doing is uh saying again how rare it is from our perspective that we we have a uh, a system that basically puts the law first not the ruler and there are certain things that uh the ruler cannot do and one of those is bend the law to his will 
the, the law will ultimately have him bend to its intent or its will. Um, and um, I think they're wanting, wanting us to read Thomas More as somebody who is on the law's side, not on the tyrant side. And you think one of the, I believe one of the documents he cites near the end of his big speech at the end was the Magna Carta, yes. which famously was 300 years earlier before mm-hmm. this. But that was all about limiting the king's power, limiting the power of the monarchy. But here we are 300 years later, yeah. and it's still it's still the same problems. And you want uh, you kind of feel it wasn't really until around probably like the 1800s after King George that the, finally the monarchy started losing power and they just became figureheads like they are now. Yes, yes. Again, a very painful and slow process um, that we uh, we have the benefit of being uh, 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 living in a period when it's in the rearview mirror. And I think one of the important lessons of the film is we have to do what we can to preserve that system and not fall into the kind of demagoguery and quasi-tyrannical uh, 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 leadership that um, um, we're, we're seeing portrayed in European history. Because it's, you know, uh, civilization and the rule of law, it's, 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 it's fragile, and it takes continual work to preserve it. So I think that's one of the reasons this period, this two-door period in, in English history is so fascinating, is because... Uh, it was a period when the law was taking second fiddle, as it were, second seat to uh, uh, these kinds of uh, machinations and uh, conspiratorial uh, activities among the powerful. And we just, it's basically saying, hey, we don't want to do this again. Mm-hmm. Let's make sure we don't do this again. All right, getting close to the end of my questions here. Anything else you want to bring up? So we bring up Henry VIII. He is played by Robert Shaw. And when they're riding around on the boat, I kept waiting for him to say, back home, I got me a taxidermy man. He's going to have a heart attack when he see what I brought him. Yeah, yeah. And I, I was thinking when he started singing to Thomas, I was thinking he was going to be singing Farewell and Adieu, my fair Spanish yeah, maiden. Yeah. You, knew, you knew the jokes were coming. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. But he does a good job, you know. He's because, a good actor, yeah. You know, uh, uh, by most accounts, Henry... Uh, uh, definitely became unglued and mentally unstable uh, the further along in his reign he, he went. And uh, it really got bad at the end, by the way. He became extremely obese. They, he couldn't even walk anymore. They had to move him around on a mechanism. But he became very paranoid. And you can see the, the uh, Shaw does a good job of portraying the the uh, uh, the on and off paranoia uh, and using threats and then cajoling and then joking and being friendly with Thomas. And Thomas doesn't know how quite to take all this. He goes, well, you know, if I say too much or something, it's going to be a short life for me here. So I've got to handle this guy carefully. And Shaw does a good job, I think, of portraying that. It's almost like we we didn't talk about uh, killing them softly, a movie about mobsters, but he is like that typical unhinged mobster, like a Capone or yes. or Tommy in Goodfellas, played by Joe Pesci, where you don't really know. Like one day they'll be nice to you and they'll let it slide. The next day you say the same thing and they'll they'll shoot you. Yes, that's right. That's exactly right. 
All right. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. You can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and The Do-Over. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds, rich episode dedicated to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at thesoundofcinemas.podomatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Saying so long, and be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies.